This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards, and today I'll be chatting with Jeremy Gans. Jeremy Gans is a professor at Melbourne Law School. He researches in all aspects of criminal law and has published books on evidence, criminal law, and criminal process rights. He has been an advisor to Parliament in Victoria. He's a frequent commentator and blogger in the Australian media on criminal justice. Today we'll be talking about his new book, The Ouija Board Jurors, Mystery, Mischief, and Misery in the Jury System published by Waterside Press in 2017. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. Uh, can you start off by giving us a bit of background to the Ouija board jurors? Of course, it's a very serious academic text, but I found it such a rollicking read. As the title suggests, it was not your everyday law textbook. It was a real page turner. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write the book? Well, I first heard about this case um, just before I became an academic. I was backpacking in uh, around the world and just read the headline in the news of the world, which was the first time the story broke and just laughed at it. I assumed that the news of the world was making up the story, but the headline said that jurors had used a Ouija board to resolve a murder, uh, case and that it was going to be appealed. And I didn't really think about it after that and then was just amazed when I got back home to Australia to, to learn that it was a real case, that there'd been a real judgment about it and that the, uh, appeal had been allowed and the um, convicted murderer got a new trial. Um, it's like it does sound um, pretty crazy that this could happen in the criminal system and the jury system. Can you tell us a bit more about the case, please? Yeah, so uh, it, it turns out that what happens in this case was that this, uh, it wasn't all 12 jurors who used a Ouija board and, in fact, they didn't use an actual Ouija board, those things you see that have letters pre-written on them and mystical symbols and the like. What happened was that they were hearing a murder case and they got uh, sent out to deliberate one afternoon. They hadn't made up their mind that afternoon, so they got, as was common at the time but is no longer common, they got sent to a hotel in Brighton uh, and they got talking at dinner. The topic of Ouija boards came up uh, and... Most of them went to bed, including the bailiffs who were there to supervise them, but four of them went to a hotel room uh, to drink, uh, but they also decided to make a Ouija board with just some bits of paper and a, a glass, and they used that. Uh, at first, they just used it in a, an innocent way. They were just uh, talking to dead relatives, even a living relative, apparently. I didn't know that was possible until I heard about this case. I did not know either. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how that conversation would go. Uh, but then, and this I think was really the point of the evening, was that 
the foreman said, is there anyone there? And, and the Ouija board spelt out with the glass moving around with their fingers on it. Uh, the name, uh, uh, oh, man, I've totally forgotten his name. Sorry, just a second. Um, the, the murder victim. Or... Yeah, the murder victim. Yeah. Right, but now, how can I not remember his name? Um, I've forgotten as well. Because the, oh, the trial um, was well, young trial, right? So we'll have to start again. Sorry. Um, but, um, sorry, it's Harry Fuller. Yeah, was sorry. The max of the murder victim. Um, so I wish I'd start again. Um, um, so the, the glass moved to each letter mm-hmm. and it spelled out the victim's name or one of the two victims in this murder case and his name was Harry Fuller. And then they had a conversation with him where, of course, they asked him, who killed you? And the glass spells out the name of the defendant in the case, Stephen Young. Hmm. Um, it was, I mean, it was quite a thing, wasn't it? Um, so I guess I'm also interested to know because there is this supposed to be sanctity of the jury trial and, um, you know, it, we're not supposed to know what went on. So I, and it, I think it raises a number of issues like what part of the deliberations is secret, you know, and this is also looking at the times when juries were sequestered as opposed to they would separate. And then, of course, afterwards the, uh, the juror who came forward, um, he was called Adrian, and he said that, um, you quote in your book, you said that the talk about Ouija boards came late into the evening. We'd had quite a bit to drink and some nice food. Some were talking about their experiences with Ouija boards. One person was convinced they definitely work, with three saying they'd done it before. So I guess I'm interested to know how did the information come out that there had been a seance? Um, yeah, so that was things that interested me in this case. Um, it's actually also, when you read the judgment, a lot of it is about this question of when should we ever get to learn what happened in a jury room? And this, that's an often debated topic, uh, and it's one of enormous interest to people like me who just wonder what goes on in those rooms. Um, in this case, what happened was that Adrian was, he wasn't one of the four jurors in the hotel room, he was one of the others who heard the discussion the night before, went to bed, and then got up the next morning. The four jurors who'd been in the room had sworn themselves to secrecy, but that didn't even last um, into the morning, and they talked about it at breakfast, and Adrian overheard it. Uh, and then after they brought in their guilty verdict against Stephen Young, they, uh, uh, they all went their separate ways. They agreed to have a reunion, but Adrian later told the News of the World that he just couldn't stop thinking about that use of a Ouija board. He thought it was irresponsible, and he was worried that um, someone was in jail because of it. Uh, that didn't mean he thought that guy was innocent, but he was just worried about what had happened. He he talked to his family. He talked to some lawyers. Everyone had kept going to telling him, go away. Um, we don't want to know about this. But eventually he found a lawyer who said, okay, the court needs to know. And they got in touch with Stephen Young's lawyers. And then Stephen Young's lawyers did two things. One, they told the court, but simultaneously they told the news of the world. And I'd always wondered about why they did that, but uh, and although there's no way to be sure, I think the likelihood is they were worried that if they didn't tell the news of the world, the court would say, we're not going to look into this. But once it was on the front page of the paper, the court had no choice really but to inquire into what had happened. It is sort of interesting because it raises these questions about in jury trials, what will be a material irregularity? And then, you know, what, what can you consult? Because you talk, you give other examples in the book where, you know, people rely on prayer. But um, then another quote that you give by Lord David Hope 
he said that a trial which results in a verdict by lot or the toss of a coin or was reached by consulting a Ouija board in the jury room is not a trial at all. So, you know, there's been other cases that you reference where um, jurors have wanted to know the star sign, uh, like the astrology star sign of the um, defendant. You know, what what is the kind of material irregularity? Like what's the threshold and can, like is there a freedom to act irresponsibly? I think you describe it in the book. Yeah, this is definitely the most interesting thing about the case to me um, because uh, behind that question of should we find out what goes on in the jury room is a question of what do we do if we find out? Um, what sort of things are we not willing to accept happens in a jury room or in relation to a jury? Uh, and, you know, I think part of the reason I'm interested in this case is because all people in criminal law at some point have to make peace with the fact that jurors are fallible and that they get things wrong. You know, I, I grew up um, uh, when I was around 10 listening to the Lindy Chamberlain trial and the results of that and then in the, the subsequent years where Lindy Chamberlain was eventually exonerated. And the thing I couldn't get out of my mind was the position the jury were in. Why had they got it wrong? How did it feel? What caused them to get it wrong? And was that something avoidable? And I eventually came to the position that I think – as everyone has to, that errors are part of the system and that's why you have things like appeals and subsequent inquiries, but also that it's worth trying to understand what sort of errors are, are problems and what aren't. I'm pretty comfortable with jurors occasionally making the wrong call on the verdict. I think that's part of the system and most of the blame can be sheeted home to the trial and the, the, the very artificial way trials are done. I can also live with the odd juror who does something really weird um, because people are fallible. Um, so, for instance, I cover in the book um, a case that happened the year after the Ouija board case in Canada where a juror was sleeping with the defendant throughout a multi-month trial, which is obviously beyond the pale. But the, the thing there is it's just one juror, um, and everyone can understand how one juror can go awry. What was so interesting about the Ouija board case is you can't blame it on the trial, or at least at the time I thought you couldn't blame it on the trial, you can't blame it on the single juror because there were four, albeit not 12. Uh, so that's the really hard question of whether you can put up with four jurors uh, doing something odd like that. Um, and uh, that was a real mystery to me. That being said, uh, there are a lot of misconceptions about the case. People thought that, that that quote from Lord Hope suggests that maybe the jurors had all done this in the jury room. That clearly would be unacceptable. But that wasn't quite what happened here. They weren't in the jury room. They weren't deliberating. They were just in between sessions. And that's a harder question. So in any case, the court grappled with this. Um, and, uh, you know, the prosecution said, ah, the, the, this is, this is a bit weird, but we expect weird things to happen in jury rooms. We expect people to have weird arguments, rely on folk ideas, uh, like astrology or whatever every now and then. But what we also expect is that it will all come out in the wash, that the, the 12 of them are going to, to cancel out some of the craziness. So, sure, even if a couple of them think astrology is true or think some other bad idea is true, that, that's no reason to think that the jury system has gone awry so long as the 12 of them ultimately reached a conclusion. It's hard to believe that 12 people would go awry in that way. Yeah, um, and that's, that's a really interesting point. Um, because 
you know, what we know about this case that you talk about in the book is that some of the jurors, um, they said, oh, well, it was just a game, whereas others were quite upset about what happened. Oh, um, and so then you kind of got a question, you know, how do we know if the jurors are just sort of letting off steam in, in some kind of way? Because, you know, it, it, it must be for jurors often a quite a traumatic and difficult kind of thing to witness and um, hear all this evidence. So, you know, what what do you think about this idea of this? Like you wrote a little bit about it in the book, but the jurors actually just letting off steam and it's a way of dealing with what's what they're hearing. Yeah, this actually troubled the Court of Appeal back in 1994. I actually went through every other case the Court of Appeal had heard that year. This is the English Court of Appeal, um, where they were told something had gone wrong in the jury room. And just about always the Court of Appeal said, that's just life. So if a, a juror might have known a witness or if jurors had argued with each other or, or if one of them had fallen asleep or if they'd had a big fight or someone had said something racist, uh, those are just things that you expect to happen when 12 strangers are put together in a stressful situation. So the Court of Appeal was really alive to this and they said, we have to be careful. What swung them in this case was two things. One, that that juror Adrian had come forward and they said, well, that's, that's a bit different. That's not just it slipping out. He, he was clearly really worried about it. On the other hand, he wasn't there in the room. Um, and then secondly, that some of the jurors were crying at the end of the, the seance they did in the hotel room. And they said, if it's just a game, um, and oddly enough, that's the slogan that the Ouija board uh, company sells the boards on, is it just a game? If it's just a game, why, why would they cry? And ultimately, that's what swung the Court of Appeal. And so one of my concerns was to try and, try and ask those two questions and see if the answers the Court of Appeal got, the, the rhetorical ones, because the jurors had done something really wrong, were correct or not. So with Adrian coming forward, I mean, there's no real – I haven't talked to Adrian. Um, um, his name's actually in the News of the World and his picture. It wasn't anonymous at all. Um, but one thing I did come across was an editor of the News of the World saying that he'd been paid for the story. And although I doubt that's a full explanation of why he came forward, I think it does at least – cast some doubt on the idea that this was just a deeply concerned citizen. It's probably a little more complex than that. But I've got no real answers otherwise on why Adrian came forward. But I think I did find the answer on why the jurors were crying. Uh, and that turns out to be because of the trial, um, something the Court of Appeal didn't talk about at all. Um, can you talk more about that than um, you say it was they were crying because of the trial? Um, what, yeah, so what do you mean? Yeah. So it, I had decided eventually I wanted to tell the story of the whole case, and that involved digging into the murder trial as well. And as it happens, this wasn't some very run-of-the-mill murder case. It was quite high profile. Um, it was a, a newlywed couple, they were always called, um, who were killed in a little village in southeast England uh, and called Wadhurst. And uh, they were an interesting couple. He was a lot older. Um, she was young. He was a bit of an Arthur Daly character, um, that is, uh, from the, from the old BBC show Minder. Um, he, uh, he's a used car salesman. He did a bit of crooked work on the side. He, he probably was grassing on people, that sort of thing. Um, and so they were an interesting couple and they, they got basically executed in their house. Um, so there were quite a few suspects. It wasn't as if, um, there was only one suspect in the case because he had a lot of enemies. And yet the person who turned out to be the, the defendant and the jury later convicted, 
he was their insurance broker. And the prosecution's theory, supported by a lot of evidence, was that he had killed them to get some cash because he had a cash shortfall because he was defrauding his insurance customers. So that's the what the case was about, a slightly unusual murder case, and they got a lot of publicity. It went on uh, BBC's Crime Watch to try and solve it. Some of the evidence was, was quite compelling, but some of it was a bit mixed. Um, so that's the background, but then there are some details about the case which I think loomed large in the trial. The one that loomed largest was this, there was a phone call from the younger victim, Nicola Fuller, she was the second one to be shot, and she'd called the police um, or tried to call the police um, just before she was killed. Uh, and the tragedy here is that call was recorded, but the police didn't act on it. And you could see what hear why if you listen to the recording, which I haven't listened to it, but it was described in the media and in the case, um, is that the person she spoke to thought that she was speaking to a child. And the reason she thought she was speaking to it, thought she was speaking to a child is because Nicola Fuller had been shot in the face and was unable to talk properly. Um, so it's a very small detail in the case, but it got played to the jury because it was part of Stephen Young's defence. He said he didn't, he wasn't the killer. It was two people who killed um, Harry Fuller and Nicola Young, not uh, Nicola Fuller, not him. Um, and he knew that because he'd been at the house he was trying to visit that day and he saw two people running away. And so it became important for the jury to listen to this horrible recording, counting footsteps and trying to work out how many people were in the house. It's a terrible um, piece of evidence, and I can't personally stop thinking about what went through Nicola Fuller's head in the last few seconds before she was killed, which was that she was trying to get help and someone couldn't even understand her. And... Uh, from the research I did, I found that there'd been an earlier trial that got aborted very quickly because a juror just couldn't cope with listening to that recording. And in the retrial that came after the, the Ouija board hearing where they said we have to throw out that old verdict and have another trial, in the retrial, um, one of those jurors was later interviewed in a documentary. And I've seen that, that documentary. Um, and he is a shattered man. Um, he was in tears the whole interview three years later, and all he could talk about was that phone call uh, and how difficult it was. And the, that documentary's point is to understand how stressful even lower-profile cases, you know, compared to, say, the Chamberlain case, can be on jurors. Um, all of that had me thinking, I think I know why those jurors were crying that night. In fact, I think I know what they were using a Ouija board because they were had on their mind how Nicola Fuller was trying to get help and that she almost certainly knew who her killer was and wasn't able to communicate it. And you can see why people's minds go to sort of silly paranormal ideas like Ouija boards, but also they, this wasn't a game, but at the same time, nor was it necessarily an attempt to get the truth. I think it was an attempt at some sort of catharsis by the jury. Um, whether it was a very successful attempt, I very much doubt, but um you know, I get teary thinking of this case. I can't imagine what it would have been like for the jurors thinking about this case and going through that process. So the, that's that's where I got to at the end is, oddly enough, this starts as a very funny, hilarious story about juries and ends up not at all funny, unfortunately. Yeah, no, I, I think that's um, really true. I know I've been to some, like, to watch some cases and now, especially with, you know, the kind of 
technologies we have, you know, being able to film things on your phone and it, it must be so scarring for the jurors to have to sit through this kind of evidence. Um, so perhaps I think we do need more empathy. Um, you quote Professor McConville um, in your book. He was quoted in the Sunday Times and he said, we take jurors for granted as empty shells, as a symbol of the system rather than real human beings. But I think this case shows that um, perhaps we need more empathy for jurors or s- support systems. I mean, do you know after this case or after other cases if there is any kind of follow-up or counselling or anything for jurors? There absolutely is. And so this is a very much a case of its times. It was 1994. And within a few years, um, the criminal justice system, for, for other reasons, was starting to realise the pressures they were putting jurors under um, you know, around the same time, but, but just a, a year or so later, the UK heard one of those terrible, had one of those terrible cases about serial killings and houses of horrors and the like. And they all realized at that point that the jurors were going to need counseling. Likewise, that around the same time, there was the OJ Simpson case in the US and those jurors were incredibly high profile and exposed and they also would need some care and attention for them. And so it's around that time, just after, just too late for this case, that the court started to realize we need to be careful about jurors' mental health. It's not just, I should add, the the evidence that I think is the stress for jurors. It's also just the burden of having to make such a hard, momentous decision, Um, often in very difficult circumstances with strangers and the like and following scrutiny. I, you know, I've got that on my mind these days, thinking about the jurors for George Pell, um, who had to make uh, two sets of jurors, had to make very hard decisions and then watch the aftermath, including the High Court appeal in that case. Uh, and I thought about that with the Chamberlain trial too. The, the Chamberlain trial wasn't an especially gruesome trial, but the pressure on those jurors during and after would have been incredible. So the, the answer is that, yes, the system has got heaps better at dealing with that kind of stress. I'm not sure that that necessarily means that the jurors are protected because there's only so much you can do to protect jurors from stress. But they've got better at it, and I think that that has translated to a bit more sympathy when something funny emerges from the jury room. Um, the courts say, well, we've given them a hard job. What do we expect? It was just bad luck in part that this Ouija board thing happened just before all of that, and in part because the defence lawyers cleverly used the strategy of going to news of the world to put, force the court's hand. Uh, the court was forced into stern condemnation and others were were joking about them the world's stupidest jury and all that and therefore missed i think the real story which was this is a a jury got a really hard run and i think that raises another of the concerns in the case um which i think was why it was so difficult is you know um this juror adrian came forward and perhaps you know some of the suggestion i think you make in the book is that because he perhaps felt burdened by the guilt of the responsibility, you know. Um, I guess there's also this concern, like, how do we protect from a juror who's kind of thinking, oh, you know, I, I didn't feel comfortable with this outcome or I've changed my mind, you know, I'm worried about sending someone to jail for life. How do we, you know, is there a balance to be struck, do you think, in investigating these kind of irregularities? Yeah, so look, one worry they have, and I think it is there in this case, is you could have a juror who's a bit on the outer, who later on 
you know, who falls out with the rest of the jury during the trial or later on starts to wonder about their own role or the other jurors' roles and then comes forward. So Adrian, in particular, he was the youngest of the jurors, it seems. And I think the others were a bit dismissive of him. He said he didn't feel comfortable raising objections because he was so young. He was 22. Um, and uh, it's possible that was part of what happened in this case. And it's certainly something that you worry about in other cases where there's been a clash. There's 12 jurors in the room. Um, a, a lot of them might have one view. And then there's a couple of holdouts. Those holdouts have a really rough time of it um, because they're in a real dilemma. Do they stick to their own individual views up against 10 or so people saying, no, you're just wrong? Or do they say, well, how could you all be wrong? Um, I guess I should shift. And then they feel a lot of burden from doing that shift. And often if a juror comes forward, and that's not the only way these stories come forward, others can hear about these things too. But if a juror comes forward, that's often the worry is that's what's going on, a personality clash. Um, it becomes very hard to... To deal. So it, Australia had a case like that where um, a juror had left a note in the jury room after the trial saying, I was coerced into this. Um, and it went all the way to the high court. Every other court said, we're not going to look into this. We, we don't want to know what happened in that room. Um, just because of some vague note, we're not going to look into this. The high court said, High Court of Australia said, no, this is a big worry. You have to investigate. What could go wrong with an investigation? But then when they investigated, they found out that the jury room was quite the mess, um, that the note had been left by the foreman and that he had argued repeatedly with the rest of the jury to the point where he had stopped talking to them, laying on the floor, um, being very upset. Ultimately, though, at the end of the day, the court said, well, that does sound kind of bad, but also more or less what you expect from 12 personalities in a room. And they, they dismissed the appeal. Um and I think that's ultimately, if you do a full inquiry, you tend to come up with that kind of answer. In this Ouija board case, interestingly, the court decided it wasn't allowed to find out what was going on in the jury room. So the actual deliberations were out of bounds. No one asked the jury any questions about those. Um, the police who were inside to investigate this case were told only ask about what happened in the hotel. And I think they missed part of the story because of that, because they, they missed what I suspect would have been the great upset of those jurors uh, from the evidence they were dealing with. And also they missed any discussion of any possible link uh, between what happened in the seance and what happened the next morning when the jury brought in its guilty verdict. Uh, and I think if they'd asked those questions, it would have resolved things either way in this case on a much more satisfactory basis. I don't know which way those it would have been resolved, but I think that should have been the focus rather than only looking at the hotel room. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I think you're right because it raises a question of what are deliberations, especially in these older cases where juries were sequestered. So, you know, because it could have gone either way, they could have sat in the jury room and said, well, that seance had nothing to do with what we're talking yeah. about here. Or they could have said, well, no, actually, we're, 
we're guided by this. Um, so I, I guess though it's also concerning because you kind of think, well, if things work that badly in this case, what about other cases that we don't know about where someone hasn't come forward? Do you think this undermines the jury trial system, the jury trial? Well, that's the, the big um, concern underlying this case is it could just happen all the time. I, you know, personally, I'm not, you know, my, my conclusion is what happened in this case wasn't so bad. Um, yeah, they were upset. Yes, they did something which to any rational person is a pretty odd thing to do. But they were upset, um, and I'm not sure that upset itself is anything to worry about in a case like this, apart from the jurors' own mental health. Um, the the reality is I'm sure that jurors do quite irrational things all the time. Um, now that they don't go to a hotel, uh, and part of, this case is part of the reason they don't go to hotels, because the court system doesn't trust them when they get together at hotels, um, they go home. But what happens when they go home? I don't think for a second that the jurors don't have some discussions with their loved ones about the case before them. And that could include all sorts of conversations that a court would have, in theory, some concern about. A spouse saying, oh, here's what I think. Or someone saying, I've read a book about this sort of thing. Here's what happened. Or, this is, of course, their biggest worry these days, I've just Googled it. Here's a bit you didn't know. Um and so those are all things that terrify lawyers, but they don't terrify me so much. Uh, I think all of that washes out in having 12 people taking their job seriously. Uh, and so while there are what you could call irregularities, uh, that's just also life. Uh, and so I put all of that in the same category as putting some jurors with some alcohol in a hotel room and they, they will play around with some pieces of paper. Yeah, I, and I think that's an interesting point that you raise because um, you, you just said, you know, we can't expect jurors to not be rational, or to be rational all the time. Like not, you talk in the book about how we can't expect them not to be affected by emotions. And for example, you give the case, the example of the United States legal system where you say has more, more jury trials than the rest of the world combined. And it provides an insight into how such a mode of thoughts can affect jurors. And you talk about this, um, you give an example of this case in Montana where the juror passed out and was assisted by the doctor who was on trial, uh, who I think was then acquitted. Can you, can you talk about, yeah, yeah. Can you talk a little about this? Yeah. So, um, so apparently this happens more than once that, um, doctors are being sued in a negligence case. And one of the jurors gets a bit overwhelmed during the trial or has a medical incident during the trial and the doctor helps out. And so the worry in those cases is does the jury become biased towards the doctor because the doctor has intervened to save one of their, their lives or health. Um, but the backdrop to that particular case is um, the way that US trials happen with lawyers making very emotive arguments. And in that case, the emotive argument asks the jurors to imagine they were um, uh, – I think it was a, in that case a person having a heart attack. Um, and they go, it, it was all, the juror were given a speech in first person from the, the supposed words of this dying man who goes to bed, suddenly feels his heart stopping and his last thoughts, which are enunciated for the jury are, if only that doctor had given me the right advice, I could 
grow up. I could go on and see my children grow up and get married and all that. But now I'm dead, and it didn't even stop then. It continued after he died for some some lengthy time, and there's that point that the jury collapsed. So emotive arguments being put to the jury. Um, but of course, that's the American system. They're trying to catch their get their emotional interest in uh, what's happening, and. I don't, again, I don't have a problem with trying to capture his emotional interests. That's why they are brought in, not to be robots processing the facts, but to be lay people trying to do, uh, to, to fairly decide in the, in the face of uncertainty. And emotion and values are part of that. So a recurrent issue in the states is the role of religion in juries. Um, and so a lot of religious people in the U.S. who see the Bible as a guide for them. What do you do when they start reading out Bible passages to each other, which cast light on the issues in a case? Uh, and the Americans constantly grapple with that very problem. And it's not at all easy, um, any more than it would be easy if you had a juror in Australia who said, I followed the Me Too movement and I think we should believe victims or I've gone through a family court case where someone lied and I think we should be suspicious about someone claiming um, that they've been abused. Um, those are you know, very controversial um, beliefs and statements, but they are also exactly what we expect jurors to have in the mix in their decision-making. I think all of us hope that they are the sole grounds for a decision, any more than we, we'd want a Ouija board to be the sole grounds for a decision. But I think it's too much to expect that they don't think about those things at all. Um, and there was another, you know, interestingly, one of those religious cases in the US, a juror prayed for guidance from God on who should I believe in this very difficult case. And her God told her supposedly, look at the defense lawyer's eyes and see, see if he meets the juror's eyes or not. So a bit of pop psychology from God there. Um, but we all know that plenty of people see those sorts of things as important. I mean, the whole of the, the whole of the justice system is based on the idea that you can look at someone under cross-examination and work out if they're lying. And that too is pop psychology. So I think we can't be too choosy. The, with the caveat that I'd be much more concerned if it was only one decision maker. But again, with 12, I'm, I'm more willing to take the, the, to run the risk that there'll be some odd, odd thinking there, so long as at the end of the day, you need 12 people to make that decision. Um, just for the non-legal experts, does a jury always have to be 12 people unanimous in the, uh, to decide? <laughs> Sorry. So it varies. Um, so the, the US Supreme Court has recently said, held that you need 12 unanimous juries in criminal cases in the US. Uh, they overturned a couple of states that have been doing majority verdicts for a while. But outside of the U.S., and remember, most of the jury trials are in the U.S., but outside the U.S., including in Australia, you can have majority verdicts, um, 10 to 2, 11 to 1. There are some exceptions. You have to have unanimous verdicts for murder cases and for federal uh, crimes, things like uh, terrorism and drug trafficking and the like. But otherwise, you can just have majority verdicts. The reason for that is another of those, or one part of the reason for that is another of those cases that I grew up with, because I grew up in Queensland under Joe Bjorki Peterson. He was eventually uh, the Premier of Queensland, and he was eventually prosecuted for corruption, but famously, uh, at a time when Queensland required unanimous verdicts, it was an 11 1 verdict in favour of Gilsall. I think it might have been 10 2. Oh, um, I remember that. One of the holdouts 
was a young juror who turned out to be politically linked to uh, Joe Bjorki Peterson's party. It was it was made into a docudrama called Joe's Jury, and it influenced a lot of people to think, hey, maybe it's okay to have majority verdicts. And look, what I'm saying that that's important to have 12 heads in there isn't inconsistent with majority verdicts. Uh, you know, you can allow for a bit of a gap. That being said, I wouldn't want to allow more than one or two holdouts from that majority verdict. Otherwise, there's just too much danger the majority could go awry. Mm. Um, and I think all of what you're saying, it, it does really relate to how can we expect jurors to just rely on the evidence before them? I know that judges give warnings and they, they're very clear about this, but, you know, in this kind of time of everyone's got uh, smartphones and Googling, is there a way we can actually just expect jurors to limit um, and make their decisions based on the evidence before them? I'm a bit of an outer on this, but I think there's absolutely no way you can depend on jurors to do that. Um, you, you can perhaps depend on most of the jurors to do that, perhaps, but you certainly can't depend on all of them. And so the, the idea that uh, there's all 12 of them will not Google at any point, I think is very unlikely. Um, so my view is the courts need to acknowledge reality accept that it's going to happen and deal with it within the trial. Have have counsel and the judge say, here's some things you might have read, here's why it wouldn't be fair for the defendant to use those things. Um, and I think there's a, a plenty of good reasons to, to take that approach, including that it removes a lot of the current need for uh, publicity bans, which, which uh, provide a kind of fake secrecy for a trial. It's very hard to find out what's happening in the trial, but I don't think it really stops the problem of jurors researching. So, yeah, no, my view, I'm very fatalistic about this, is human nature, especially these days, is people are going to want to look, not just because they're addicted to their smartphones, because because they feel the pressure of wanting to get the right decision. Yep. And it yep. would feel terrible if you're a juror worrying that you're, you're, something's being kept from you that had you known that you would have reached a different decision. I'd struggle under that myself. And, yes, there are often good reasons not great reasons, but good reasons to keep information from jurors. But I think the reality is it's better to say, here's a thing that you could read somewhere else, and here's why it's not fair for you to take that into account. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and so then coming back to this case, um, the key case in the book, how do you think if there is a kind of juror misdemeanor, um, how should we respond to that? Should there be a retrial or... You know, is, should there be another process to kind of save the trial? What, what do you think? I think in this case the right answer was not to do a retrial, but that's a very hard call to make in light of the news of the world headlines. But I think a full inquiry would likely have said this is just a nothing. It, it sounds bad, but it sounds a lot worse than it is once you understand the context. Um, that being said, a retrial in this case wasn't the worst thing ever. It just involved another five weeks. There are worse things that can happen. Um, but uh, I, I think in general, retrials are, are something you should only do uh, when there's much stronger cause to worry that something has gone wrong with the verdict. And I don't think there was that cause in this case. The right answer for this kind of case, regardless of whether you have a retrial or not, is compassion. Um, that the, the reaction should have been what what did we push this jury into? What did we cause them to do? And how can we help them in the future? And that's 
very much what was lacking in this case. Um, in fact, the situation has gotten worse because uh, in, with the rise of the internet and concern about jurors researching via the internet, um, a lot of jurisdictions, including Australia, have now created criminal offences for jurors who research about things they, they shouldn't have researched about, uh, and they could go to jail. And I think that is just, uh, I think it will be very ineffective in stopping jurors from misbehaving, but it will make it very hard to respond with compassion uh, when jurors do do things they're not meant to do. Uh, so I think that's a wrong way to go, but it's also very much a sign of the times. With the courts at the moment continue to believe they can stop all these problems with sufficiently stern warnings, and eventually that leads to overreactions like criminal offences. Um, I look forward to a time in the future where they give up on that. In part, I suspect it just reflects the different worlds that judges uh, and jurors live in, uh, just a, even a different age. Age Judges these days are all people who grew up without computers. Jurors these days who are around 20 to 40 years younger all grew up with computers. Yeah, um, it does seem pretty futile. You know, I know the students that I teach, for example, if I said to them, don't go on the internet, they're just, <laughs> it's just a waste of everyone's time, really. Um, but I, I do think you bring up an interesting point about compassion because obviously, and you talk a bit about this in the book, um, there's the financial cost of a retrial, but in addition to that, there are emotional costs to oh, yeah. the, the new jury, but also to the victim's family um, and perhaps the accused family. Can you talk more about this? Yeah, so look, one dilemma I have with this book is I'm not a journalist, so I didn't do any interviews because um, uh, I it, it just lacked the skills to do interviews properly. But in particular, I was very concerned about going to people who had been traumatised or potentially traumatised by this case and saying, well, relive your experience for me. So I relied exclusively on public statements. Um, but it, it caused me a real dilemma because I felt very sorry for everyone involved in this case. Um, there's so many people who seem to be burnt by it one way or another. Even the judge got sick and you know, uh, there's much less a person in his life after this case. Um, the solicitor for the defendant um, uh, had a downturn in his career after this case. They all suffered in various ways, but especially the victim's family who just uh, felt awful at their having to be a retrial, but also have had to live with a case about the death of their son or daughter um, being branded as a joke case. Uh, and they really struggled with that. So I felt very sorry for them. Um, probably the only person in this case I ended up not feeling all that much compassion for was the accused, Stephen Young, um, because as part of researching in this case, I kind of had to think, is it possible his was a miscarriage of justice? Did, did this Ouija board cause a miscarriage of justice? not necessarily because the jury got the verdict wrong in the first trial, but because the retrial was done in the shadow of what the first jury had done, and the jury were told in the retrial, You're, the first jury really stuffed up in this case. Don't you do that? And I, that doesn't sound like the makings of a fair trial to me when you tell a jury that. Um, that being said, Here's I looked... what I found. Oh, sorry, that's my, my watch just went off. No, that's okay. No worries. So... So one thing I did was go through the evidence in this case. I'm certainly left in no doubt myself that the outcome of the, the second trial, which was a conviction again for Stephen Young, and his later appeal where the appeal was dismissed, that was his second appeal, was the correct outcome. He he was involved in this case. 
I'm not sure, mind you, that this uh, either trial got the full story of, of how Harry and Nicola Fuller were killed. I suspect there's more to the story than has ever come out, and I do suspect um, Stephen Young was probably right that there was a second person involved. He was just wrong when he, he claimed that he wasn't involved at all. Uh, so he's the only person I didn't feel compassion for, but everyone else, I think everyone had a really hard time out of this case. Yeah, it was quite sad, uh, especially Nicola Fuller's family reading the book. They did seem mm. to be really um, re-traumatised by the ongoing nature of what happened. And, um, and, and so they, they, they also lived in the shadow of that phone call, Nicola's last words to, to British Telecom. Uh, they, before the Ouija board angle broke, they they were in the news saying they wanted to sue British Telecom for failing to properly respond to her call, um, which doesn't make sense. It's per, in fact, even that person on the other end of the call was also traumatised when she learned what had really happened. Um, it, everyone got burnt by this case, but you can just see how they've struggled with it. Um, so, uh, I mean, if I was a journalist, I would have wanted to talk to them to find out more about that, but it's, I just don't have the skills to go to someone who's been traumatised and say, yeah. tell me of course. Um, and so then in these kinds of cases where there is either, you know, a kind of material irregularity with the jurors or, um, or a retrial where, you know, you just said that you didn't think it was necessarily particularly fair for the accused, um, how do we prevent miscarriages of justice, especially when there is so much secrecy that surrounds jury deliberations? Well, this is this is the dilemma. I, I, the, I mean, all of criminal justice is risk management. It's all about um, things are going to go wrong. Lots of things go wrong at every single trial, not necessarily uh, jurors in a hotel room, but just odd things being said at the trial, some witness saying the wrong thing. There are lots of errors that can happen, and you always have to make it a call at the end of the day, how much noise are we willing to cope with? Because literally no trial is anything close to perfection. Uh, and so that's why I think the answer has always got to be allow for lots of reviews post-trial. I'm not with those people who think the jury's verdict is final and it's wrong to, it's somehow unfair to the jury or it's wrong to anyone else to question a jury's verdict. I think we should always question and we should continue to question even after the final appeal. Uh, so that's why I'm someone who's, who, uh, doesn't much like the the view that uh, people when that, that it's wrong for the media to continue to to ponder mysteries in trials. Um, so, for example, after the Chamberlain case, when Lindley Chamberlain was first convicted, there were people who said that's enough. We should stop wondering whether she's guilty or not. And clearly enough, um, subsequent events showed that was very much the wrong view. I think that's the wrong view with every case. So, um, in Stephen Young's case, he's um, still trying to prove his innocence, and although I don't think he's innocent, I think what's great about the English system is he can he can keep trying. Um, they've got a Criminal Cases Review Commission which permanently, constantly reviews on request any criminal conviction, uh, and I think that's the best answer to deal with this sort of thing, review afterwards, rather than putting too much pressure on just one part of the system, the jury. Um, in the Chamberlain case, uh, Justice William Dean, who dissented in the High Court case that dismissed her appeal a few years before she got out, he said that we, we shouldn't, we are putting an impossible burden on jurors if we say we're never going to question you. 
Um, to the contrary, we should all share that burden. And so that's the best thing I could say to those 12 jurors in any difficult case is you're not alone on this. Yes, you've got a very hard call to make. Yes, yours is very important. But you do not bear the sole responsibility for getting things wrong. There are many other decision makers in the system who have the power to review. I think that's absolutely right. That's a really important point. It kind of does somewhat absolve this really heavy burden from jurors because the weight must just be like really, really difficult to um, to bear. And so, I've, what I've, I've talked to the odd juror because occasionally they come and talk to me. I've never been on the jury myself. I've never been called up for some reason. Um, but um, I've talked to the odd juror. Yeah, I mean, some of them love it. Some of them find it the most exciting experience of their life or one of the most, um, but others find it one of the hardest experiences of their life. Um, so, yeah, I, I, and I often wonder, of course, about the high-profile cases, the, the Chamberlain jurors, the George Bell jurors, um, all these jurors, these 12 jurors in this Ouija board case. I always wonder about how, what their lives are like, how often they think about this sort of thing. Yeah, it, it, I can imagine in some cases it would be just terrible and impact them for a really long time or the rest of their lives even potentially and so then what do you think I guess in another way this is another million dollar question but what do you think this reveals about the strengths and weaknesses of the jury system and should we try and protect it oh I'm a big fan I'm a big fan of protecting the jury system um in part because I I just like lay people's involvement in the system I like some of the noise in the system um it it breaks the idea that it's all formal logic or anything like that that lawyers sometimes try and put forward. Um, so uh, I'm a big fan. Um, but in particular, I'm also not a fan of any of the suggested alternatives. So all the alternatives involve having a judge or a small number of judges deciding these cases, and I see much more danger in that. To my mind, one judge can be just as bad as one juror in falling victim to bad ideas. I don't think a judge is likely to pull out a Ouija board to resolve a case or toss a coin or whatever. But, uh, and Lord Devlin made this point um, in his book on jurors last century, um, judges get hardened because they are constantly in the system and they, they fall victim to their own, their own rules of thumb based on what could be a very negative or very, uh, peculiar experience of human life within the system. The best thing about jurors, Lord Devlin said, is that they come from outside, they get given brief, very uh, extreme power, but that's it, and then they go again. Um, they, they have The power doesn't have time to corrupt them um, in a way that a judge, no matter how well-meaning, will get affected by their experience. So I see the jury system for all of its many flaws is so much better than that alternative. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I've, I know, I'm sure you have met a number of jaded lawyers who are definitely hardened by their experiences. Um, when, when I was at uni, I, my ambition was to be a prosecutor at one point. I wanted to be a defence barrister and I wanted to be a prosecutor. And I, I met up with a, a person who was working at the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions, um, a federal prosecutor, at a party. And I said to them, you know, I'd love to be a prosecutor. But I have just one concern. I'm, I worry that even as a prosecutor, you're going to just get hard and decide that all defendants are scum and all uh, defence lawyers are crooks and that everyone's guilty. And she laughed and said, 
no, 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 don't worry about that. And I said, oh, that's so good to hear. She said, they are all scum. <laughs> yeah. That decided I wasn't going to become a prosecutor. No, I, think, I think that seems wise. Um, very sensible. Um, Jeremy, I've taken up a lot of your time, um, but before we go, can you just tell me about what you're working on next? Well, I've done a whole lot of research for another of these true crime books after the Ouija board one. There's a, a woman named Emily Perry who got convicted for a time of the attempted murder of her husband with uh, arsenic poisoning. And part of the evidence against her was that quite a few of her other relatives had died of what appeared to be arsenic poisoning, including her previous husband. Um, Amazingly, her, her then husband, the one she was convicted of attempting to murder, stood by her and said, no, no, she's, she's not trying to kill me. And she got cleared by the high court. So it's a, it's a fascinating, very long running case where, um, now everyone involved is dead. Um, but, um, I've gone through the trial. So I'd like to write a book on that. I've got all the material for that. I haven't got around to it yet. At the moment, I'm writing a book on, Animals and the Law with um, a colleague of mine at Melbourne Law School, Katie Barnett, just um, as a way of talking about the law in general. Um, I've got no strong interest in animals, but they're a great way of, of understanding how bits of the law work. They both sound really interesting projects, um, projects especially um, the book about Emily Perry. I, I, I do like your true crime um, kind of accounts of things. It's very interesting, and I like also how you – make your work accessible to both academics, lawyers and non-lawyers alike. I think it's really important. And I, I guess that's you know, relates to the point you made about Lord Devlin saying as well that it is important to have um, like lay members of the public participating in the legal process. It's, it's not just for lawyers. So I really appreciate that in your work. Um, Jeremy, thank you very much. Big- Sorry. Sorry. No, you go on. I was going to say, I'm a big fan of um, academic lawyers engaging, as they the universities like to call it, with lay people on these issues. That being said, uh, I'm not sure my university is as big a fan as you of me writing true crime as opposed to more staid legal books, but that's a, a, a topic for another time. Yeah, well, that, yes, that sounds like something else we can get into. Um, but, uh, Jeremy, thank you for your time today. Um, it's been really interesting. Uh, once again, I'm Jane Richards for New Books in Law a channel on the New Books Network. I've been speaking to Jeremy Gans of Melbourne Law School about his new book, The Ouija Board Jurors, Mystery, Mischief and Misery in the Jury System. It's published by Waterside Press. Jeremy, thank you for your time today. Thanks.